this off right now, hand her off. And um, as, we, as we welcome that and as excited we are, we do want to continue to pray um, for two of our youngest, um, Anson Reynolds, looks like he's going to be home, hopefully today, uh, Ellen and Caleb's baby, looks like he's going to get out of ICU, get out of the hospital, be back home today, um, which is great news. Um, those of you who are tracking, though, with the Huddlestons, um, Abby and Scott, uh, Blair has been put on the heart transplant list, so things are very serious there. So they are, they are staying in Little Rock. She will be in Children's until that heart is provided and uh, things are going on there. They're going to need help with meals. They're going to need help with transportation, with things like that. So just we'll be communicating with that as we go. But I want to take some time to, to pray for them this morning. So join with me. God, thank you for your incredible goodness and blessing us with these families. And this is life. This is life. We welcome healthy babies back, and we pray for those to continue to grow in their health and those that are in desperate need of your touch. God, strengthen our family. Strengthen Scott and Bonnie in particular as they wait, and Abby and Scott as they wait. God, strengthen them. Give them peace. And God, we don't understand how this works. We don't understand all that's involved, but we want to see you in the midst of it. So do your thing, Lord. Please, we as this church ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So... We do start Lent this week. Good morning, everyone. My name is John Ray. I'm part of the teaching team here. I facilitate that. We're really glad to see you here. Uh, Lent comes up this week. How many of you practiced Lent before with this? Okay. Somewhat, some, a lot of, lot of hands down with that. That's all right. Here's the deal. We all live our lives by schedules. What kind of schedules do we live by? Work. Children's activities, man, sports, right? What else? Seasons, yep. Yes. Um, when I was growing up, hunting season. Man, that's what you live by. The opening day of dove, the opening day of deer, opening day, right? That's what you live by with that. And again, around here, football season, basketball season, sports, they go on. So the question is not, are we going to live according to a season? The question is, which one? And which one is going to take prominence in that? So for a long time in the history of the church, for hundreds of years, the church oriented all of their life around the seasons of the church. This is called the church calendar. It actually starts with Advent. Advent is the start of the year. And then moves through Christmas, Epiphany, which is where we are right now, and then we go into Lent, followed by Easter, Pentecost, and then ordinary time with that. So this is a way of orienting ourselves and our lives to the story of Jesus with that. Now, in particular, this year, um, Wednesday night, we're going to have an Ash Wednesday service here, combined with Christ the King Anglican. 
So it's going to feel kind of Anglican there, but we will be participating as well, doing some things. So that'll be right here Wednesday night, 630. And then also on Thursday mornings, we're going to have a time of prayer and reflection. It's not going to be a guided time. It can, you can drop in, but from 7 to 8.30 on Thursday mornings during Lent for six weeks, we will open this room. We'll have music. There'll be someone here to pray with you if you want someone to pray with or if you just want to come and sit and quietly meditate and reflect during the Lenten season, we will have that time open with that. So that's what's going on with Lent. Now, let's get into our text this week. Um, a couple times over the past few years, I've been given the opportunity to speak and pray at a naturalization service for Judge Wiedemann down at the federal courthouse. This is where people, immigrants from other countries who have gone through the arduous task of applying for U.S. citizenship, finally get to take the oath. They get to become U.S. citizens. And you walk in this classroom, or the courtroom, and it's full. It's awesome. People from all these different countries, and they're all given this little American flag to hold. And then the judge leads them through the oath, and I offer a prayer and a few words with that. And this is the oath they take. I find this interesting. I'm not going to read through here, but I would just want to make a, a couple notes about it. This oath, or this confession, is pretty clear-cut. You are giving up allegiances, you are renouncing them to any other power except the United States. And, in re and you are pledging with that, by renouncing these other things, you're pledging to defend, to support, to be part of this country. And with that, as a result of that, you get all the rights that come with citizenship. So there is absolutely, legally in our country, there is absolutely no difference between a citizen who gets citizenship by natural birth and one who is naturalized. There's no difference. Doesn't matter if you were born here or whether you were born thousands of miles away. Once you take this oath and once you're sworn in, you are a citizenship. These are pretty powerful words. And I wonder what they mean to most of us who were born here and have never consciously had to renounce and abjure allegiance to another country or power. How easy it would be to assume that just because we were born here, we are fulfilling these obligations because we've never had to consciously think about them. In this week's text, Jesus, in the way that Jesus does, Ask his disciples, in a way, about their citizenship. Centering on who they think he is. And while Peter says the right words, his actions show he really doesn't understand what that means. And so the question before us this morning is, do we? Do we understand what it means to say, Jesus is Lord, Jesus is King, Jesus is the Messiah? Now, last week, we took a look at following Jesus, and we talked about what that doesn't look like. That doesn't look like the moralism of the Pharisees. That doesn't look like the relativism or the romanticism on, what, on the other side. And it doesn't look like this kind of neutrality or inertia in the middle. But it's calling us to do something deeper, something more with that. This week, we get a solid lead on what that looks like. 
This week, we get the invitation to say yes to something, where last week, it was the invitation to say no to things. So that's what we're doing. So let's look at our text. We're reading from Mark 8, starting with chapter 20, uh, verse 27 this week. Then Jesus and his disciples went to the village of Caesarea Philippi. Important note here, Caesarea, Caesar, Caesarea, Caesar's town in Philippi. This was the, the seat in Galilee of Roman empirical rule. So when you went into Caesarea, you were surrounded by images, temples, reminders that Caesar was Lord. On the way, he asked his disciples, and this probably, this may have very well prompted the question. I want you to imagine the scene. Jesus is walking into town. He's got his disciples with him. Here's a, here's a statue to Jesus. Here's a banner, or a, a statue to Caesar. Here's a banner for Caesar. And he looks at them as he goes by, and they read them. And then he turns to his disciples. He, he may have even pointed at one of those. He goes, well, who do the people say I am? This is what they're saying about Caesar. Caesar is Lord. Caesar is the Son of God. That was a title for Caesar. <clears throat> who do they say I am? I find this statue every time I look at it. This is Jesus at Trafalgar Square. It was an art installation in London of Jesus standing over, and it was, and it was all around the question, who is this man? Esse homo. Who is this man? But he goes on, and he says, who do the people say I am? They, and they responded, the disciples responded, John the Baptist, others say Elijah, still others, one of the prophets. He asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. So then he warned them not to tell anyone about him. Then Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and experts of the law, and be killed, and after three days rise again. So in our study of Mark, here's the hinge. This is the hinge verse for Mark. Everything up until now has been building, and now with this, all our attention begins as we move towards Jerusalem, as we move towards the trial, towards the crucifixion, towards the resurrection. What an appropriate time to begin the Lenten season as we in our story now turn towards Jerusalem with this. He spoke openly about this. So Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Peter understands, hey, there's a change here. And Peter doesn't like it. And I got to tell you, I don't like it either. But turning and looking at his disciples... He, Jesus, rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. You are not setting your mind on God's interest, but on man's. Then Jesus called the crowd along with his disciples and said to them, If anyone wants to become my follower, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me and because of the gospel will save it. For what benefit is a person to gain the whole world, yet forfeit his life? What can a person give in exchange for his life? This is one of the first verses that I memorized as a teenager, as I was starting to walk away from a lifestyle far from God. As I was, you could say I was plagued in a way 
I was convicted is the church word, but it felt more like tortured in a way by these words. What does it profit if I gain the whole world but lose at the end? Nothing. The answer is a resounding nothing. It's a rhetorical question. You lose, period, with that. Jesus goes on to say, if any, For if anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of the Father with the holy angels. And he said to them, I tell you the truth, there are some standing here who will not experience death before they see the kingdom of God come with power. Six days later, Jesus took Peter, James, and John. And this is a foretelling. Some people question with that, but that's literally the line into the next part. What we're going to read next is with that. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John and led them up to a high mountain privately, and he was transfigured before them. His clothes became radiantly white, more so than any launderer in the world could bleach them. Then Elijah appeared along with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. So Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good for us to be here. Let us make three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah, for they were afraid and did not know what to say, right? Like, yeah, it's like, whoa, this is scary. Uh, how about we make you a snack? <laughs> you know, it's, like, it's kind of that awkward thing that they're doing. Because what we see here is Jesus is not only transfigured, Jesus is also prefigured. Jesus is shown to be who he is going to be revealed as. And also what we see, and this is important for us today, as we think about how are we going to stay on this path, is Jesus is being shown for how God sees Jesus, how the Father sees Jesus. The true nature, character, physical presence of Jesus is busting into this current reality with this transfiguration. So this is, not just a, this is not just a magic trick. This is not just a party trick. This is not something that Jesus is doing to show off in any way. What he is doing is he, is, is he has been confessed as Lord, as Messiah. Peter has said it. He's called his disciples to follow it. And now in that confession, he's saying, yes, look. Moses and Elijah are two figures. They represent the law and the prophets. But also in Jewish eschatology, the way the Jews thought the world is going to wrap up, Moses and Elijah come back at the end of time. They're figures of completion. They're figures that, hey, the time is now here. God's kingdom is here. The Jews knew when they saw Elijah, when they saw Moses come back, that the time was culminating. This is what we see. In Jesus, all things are culminating. All things are coming together. The past, the present, the future, all things come together in Christ. And this transfiguration busts out of him in a way that the disciples see. Then a cloud overshadowed them. And a voice came from the cloud, This is my dear son, listen to him. Suddenly when they looked around, they saw no one with him anymore except Jesus. At the baptism, we hear the voice, This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. At the transfiguration, we hear the voice again, Come from heaven. We want to hear it at the crucifixion. And we hear silence. 
And then the voice speaks directly to Jesus in the grave and says, get up. Three times the word of God comes to Jesus in that. Baptism, transfiguration, resurrection with that. So what what do we do with this? Y'all, I don't think I have to tell you, but following Jesus can be hard at times. It will be tested. Following Jesus is not easy. As a matter of fact, Jesus makes it very clear that it is going to cost us everything. There is no halfway followership. There is no, there is no following Jesus on the cheap. There is no bargain basement discipleship. You don't get a 20% off coupon. It is all in or not in at all with that. And that is so, that can create so much fear in us, right? Because in saying yes to Jesus, just like in the, in the pledge, right? We're saying no to everything else. No plan B. No backup. No, well, if this doesn't work out, I've got another option. It's all in on Jesus or not in on Jesus at all. And to do that, I think we all need our occasional transfigurations. We all need to be able to see Jesus, not just as we think, but as God sees Jesus. We need that affirmation that Jesus is the Messiah, is the chosen one, is the Son of God. We need that affirmation that Jesus is who Jesus says he is. And so we need to be looking for that. We need to be confessing that. And I want to make this link clear again. The transfiguration follows the confession. The disciples seeing Jesus as Jesus truly is is followed by their confession of who they declare Jesus to be. You would think it was the other way around. You, wouldn't you think it would be the transfiguration first? Jesus said, hey, let me, let me show you who I am. Watch this. Blah! Right? Sends off the light, grows the halo, levitates across the ground, you know, comes up about four, four or five feet. Now, who do you say that I am, Right? That would make a lot more sense. Wouldn't it? Wouldn't that make it easier if Jesus did that first? Come on, wouldn't it? (laughs) Of course it would, or we think it would. That's not the way it works. It's not the way it works. We confess things we don't yet see. That's what faith is, is declaring things that we don't yet see. We long to see. We want to see. We want to believe it's true. And even haltingly, as Alex said in our, in our call to worship, even haltingly we say, Jesus, your Lord, even though we know our hearts are twisted, are conflicted, we know our flesh is weak, we know our words will be tested, we still confess it. But that confession is what leads to seeing That confession is what sets the ground for us experiencing maybe. 
Now, here's where I would love to give you a guarantee. Here's where I'd love to give you an ironclad guarantee. I'd love to say, hey, confess Jesus, it's all going to work out. I would love to be able to say that to you. I can't. I don't know what it's going to be like. I am not God, and this is often that we, do, we see this, that we want it so badly. We want to see it. And yet we never do. If we look at the lives of the saints, if you look at Mother Teresa, you look at Oswald Chambers, you look at, read the biography of all these people that we consider in the pantheon, in a way, of Christian saints and mystics, all of them, without exception, went through years of what they call dryness or the dark night of the soul. Years of not feeling the presence of God at all, feeling nothing. As a matter of fact, if I could guarantee you one thing, that's probably it. I would be on a lot safer ground to guarantee you right now, confess Jesus and you will feel nothing. That doesn't necessarily sell, though, does it? But it's true. But I can almost guarantee you also that waiting, holding back, Saying, Jesus, you do this first, that's never going to work either. So we have to step out. If we have any hope of seeing Jesus, any hope of the transfiguration, we have to start with the confession. That's the only thing that we get to control. And in doing that, like I said, with just like the oath that the citizens take when they come here, we have to say no as we say yes to Jesus. We have to say no to everything else. No plan B, no backup plan, nothing else. We say no to those other things so that we can say yes to Jesus. And then we walk it out by faith, the same way that Jesus walked. 1 John 2, 6 says, anyone who claims to be intimate with God ought to live the same kind of life that Jesus lived or ought to walk as Jesus lived. Jesus lived by faith. Jesus walked it out by faith, and that is our invitation as well. Listen, this is what saves us from the moralism of the Pharisees we talked about last week. This is what saves us from that, that romantic relativism on the other side. And this is what moves us out of inertia, out of that perceived neutrality, which is not neutrality at all, but moves us out of the perception of that, is to step out in faith. That's what we are called to do. We are called, and it starts with, this confession. Jesus is king. Now, I'm going to ask the worship team to come back up. And I want to, I want to go back to where we started with this. Here we see Jesus and his disciples walking through Caesarea Philippi, walking through Caesar's town, full of the images, the idols to Caesar. And he's, he is making them choose. Jesus really is putting them on the spot. In a way, Jesus is saying, is it Caesar or is it me? Who do you say that I am? Now we know that what's going to happen, especially Paul, when he, he really gets this because he starts going, hey, when you say Jesus is Lord, that was a political statement. Not just a confession of faith, but it was also a political statement with that. It's a good thing we don't have to do that, right? 
It's a good thing that in our context we are free of the demands of society and politics and stuff like that, right? None of us. Oh, yeah, right, yeah. No, y'all, it's just the same for us. It's just the same for us. We've got to make that. Whether it is, the, whether it is politics, whether it is commerce, whether it is some other philosophy that calls us for allegiance, we have to say no in order to say yes to Jesus. This is our confession. And hear it clear, this is the confession of Grace Church. At Grace Church, we declare Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the one. There is no other hope but Jesus. Our hope is found in nothing less than Jesus Christ and his righteousness. That is who we seek to be. As followers, faithful followers of Jesus who have given everything else up so that we can follow the one true God. The oath we take as followers of Jesus is to follow the one true king, the one true ruler. We renounce all other affections, affiliations, and allegiances that conflict with, the, that, conflict with that one confession. Jesus is the one. We're going to have a time now of communion, of taking up an offering of prayer and reflecting. Our communion table is open to whoever is making this confession. Haltingly or excitingly, conflicted or confident, you are welcome at this table with that confession. We ask you to come and get the elements, hold on to them, we'll all take them together. And then after that, we'll pass an offering, a symbol that no one here is without something to give and no one here is without a need. And then we'll wrap up with our benediction. Thank you for being here this morning.